0: If you were to uh, pause for a moment and think about your experience on this retreat as we've explored the four Brahma-viharas and the seven factors of enlightenment, you could ask yourself, could you have another, could you have a conversation with another yogi regarding mindfulness? about your experiences of mindfulness on this retreat and what you've heard about mindfulness in the talks and all? And you could. You could have a conversation. In fact, in our dedicated practitioner program, this is exactly what we do. We give reading assignments and then on re- the, the, the retreat for each of the, there's a five retreats as part of this program, we actually take time for all the participants to discuss every aspect of what we're studying together. So you share among yourselves. And so in that same way, you could talk about mindfulness and your experience of mindfulness and what it means to you and so forth. And you could do the same thing about energy. You could talk about what you've discovered about energy on this retreat and energy to overcome the hindrances and all the things that Trudy had to say and your own experience. And the same with investigation, and to uh, to understand investigation is as, as best you have been able it's this is sort of how you view it. Maybe you view it as curiosity or as a strong desire to understand or or just staying with something. You could do some level of verbalization around investigation, and likewise with joy we haven't gotten to tranquillity yet, so not that maybe, although even without any verbal description, this, this tranquility or sometimes called calm, you've had your experience with tranquility and calm, uh, having it or the absence of it and the presence and absence of it and how you've struggled with it and so forth. And now tonight, we're also with concentration. Uh, we spent a lot of time on concentration and you, you have a, an experience of concentration in the context of all the other seven factors of enlightenment, which is pretty cool. You could discuss any one of these factors now in the context of the others, based on your own experience uh, uh, and what you've heard. And then tonight we're going to be looking at equanimity in this way. And each of these factors is in the context of each other. For those of you who are relatively new or brand new to retreat practice, just sort of getting the the, the idea of it, walking around Will's neighborhood, just being in in, in in a or the ballpark if you if you like baseball or something, getting in getting into the ballpark of just your your first taste of this. For those of you who've had quite a bit of retreat, you hear it with a, more context because you of your own past experience. But for all of us, we are developing a deeper understanding where we're, we're penetrating, we're going down as well as broad. And, and that, over time, starts to make a real difference in our practice, a real difference. This is what, uh, in a, a book that we use quite a bit, Analia's, uh book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, the Satipatthana is the, the Buddhist teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness, which on many retreats, the talks are based on the four foundations of mindfulness. And we have taken you through each of the four foundations of mindfulness, as we've told you all along, the body and the Vedna, the pleasant and unpleasant, the, the mind states and the emotions, and then the, the, the Dharma, the way things are that can be seen in all of our subjective experience. And so, uh, uh, this is what is the, the, the Venerable Analiyo has to say about, he's actually, these are the Buddha's words in this that I wanted to read you. Because this is from the Satipatthana Sutta, and, he, and the Buddha goes through the very same steps with each of these. And so he starts. He, so he started this with mindfulness, and then said these same instructions with each one. But this is the Buddha stating this for equanimity. If the equanimity awakening factor is present in him, he knows there is equanimity awakening factor in me. If the equanimity awakening factor is not present in her, she knows there is no equanimity awakening factor in me. She knows how the unarisen equanimity awakening factor can arise and how the arisen equanimity awakening factor can be perfected by development." So we develop a kind of awareness. We develop a relationship with these factors. And this this goes back to the question the other morning about uh, noticing when something's not present and when it is present. So yes, we do want to notice. Oh, well, you know, I I don't have very much energy. A Yogi uh, in, in a meeting today uh, was saying that she noticed that she didn't have much energy in her practice and she revved it up and she had more energy and she saw what a difference it made. Someone else was, was talking about the need for equanimity, in fact, in their practice that they that they were too revved up, and they knew that they needed to bring it down a little that they just needed to to, to increase uh, the the settling factors you know of, of the concentration and and the tranquility and the equanimity so um, we, we learn how to in our practice to start noticing oh, how, how, what 's the state of our mind, so we start to be able to. Participate, humbly, minimally, (laughs) in uh, affecting the state of our mind. That we're not just completely passive in this. We can cultivate, we can cultivate, we can co create in a very modest, modest way uh, our conditions. And that's very empowering. It's very useful on retreat. Retreat is a safe place for these explorations and in daily life. So, at times, for some of you, we, uh, we really encourage you to go a little further in, in various ways, to, to, uh, in ways that sometimes can be a little unsettling to you as you get out of your comfort zone, because you learn then to balance yourself. And then with others, as you've had so much experience of being outside the zone, it's just this reassurance, no, go slow, be gentle. This is a time to be gentle. And for each of us, sometimes we stretch and we can get a little shaken. And other times, we, we really want to be gentle with ourselves in the practice in this way. So, if tranquility represents a calm mind, equanimity is a balanced mind. It means that the mind is able to stay centered or return to center, as the instructions were. So if the mind is calm and the equanimity is really strong, then the equanimity keeps penetrating deeper and deeper and you become more and more still. The other morning we were working on stillness, and Jack in the guided meditation this morning with awareness that that, that the equanimity really helps Uh, with the gaining of access to that in practice. When we are uh, in meditation practice and equanimity becomes very, very strong and there's energy and there is mindfulness and calm and so forth, the equanimity can become so strong that it becomes... Uh, the source which we go into a deep absorption. If we turn towards samadhi practice to deep absorption practice, the mind just gets so still that we drop in deeper and deeper and, and get absorbed in one object because the mind becomes so flexible. In Vipassana practice, the strong equanimity allows you to see clearly. You're not thrown off by the hindrances. One of the hindrances may be storming. You may have restless mind or aversion, maybe aversion to yourself, your self-judging or aversion to the practice or uh, to a teacher or to another yogi or to an, a situation in your life. But because you've got the balance of mind, you, you are able to keep coming back to it to, you're able to see, oh, I'm losing my mindfulness, or, or, or I, I, I need to do some loving kindness now. The equanimity gives you the balance of mind so that you can have wisdom, that you can, you can bring perspective to the practice. It allows you to uh, stay with your intention. Equanimity is a very, very strong empowering factor on retreat and in daily life. Very strong, very empowering. One way that you can say it is that equanimity, is, uh, when equanimity is strong, your mind is not disturbed by disturbances. So you can be going, oh my God, oh my God. And yet, it's okay. It's okay, because the equanimity is strong. In um, daily life, those of you who have uh, uh, in, had various situations where you have had access to equanimity when there wasn't much calm and you may not have noticed it, but you did. And it makes a, a, a big difference. It's what allows you to uh, keep going when it's not so clear what one should do. It allows you to stay present in a particular Situation. So here on retreat, uh, you're having just a terrible sit, just a terrible sit, and your mind's just but you've got enough equanimity to know, oh yes, this too, this too, you it's it's okay. You can absorb it. You don't lose your mindfulness because there's enough balance of mind that you <laughs> that you can come back, even though the mind's all upset. And you may just have to quote endure that whole sit. But if you've got a balance of mind, so it's just unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. That's The equanimity allows the knowing, the mindful knowing, it's just unpleasant. And likewise, equanimity uh, uh, balances or softens your exuberance. But, whoa, this was a great sit, you know, it was a great sit. Oh, wow, feeling this going through me. Oh, no, it's just pleasant. This is just when the mind's calm or absorbed or whatever. It, it stops you from getting lost in the pleasant, just as it it, it balances the unpleasant. In daily life, many times uh, we will have a moment of what I call "can't get there from here." So you're having a significant conversation with uh, your significant other, and how you're feeling and how he or she is feeling can't get there from here. There's too much uh, alienation. There's too much self-righteousness. There's too much attachment to being right. So you can't get there from here. But with equanimity, you go, oh, this is just now. This too will pass. And it allows you to maintain during this unpleasant, during this time of strong emotional despair, Uncertainty, in 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 my uh, twenty years of being an entrepreneur and a, a creator of all these different magazines and editor in chief of Esquire and all, it was the equanimity factor that helped me so much, because there was there were many times in my my business life where I didn't see how to get there from here at all, and uh, I. I would, I would have a lot of anxiety about this. So I would not have called my mind calm. I was going like, what am I going to do? And I was looking with some fervor for some, some alternative, but there was none immediately appearing. Uh, but it was the equanimity that this, that didn't, I didn't, I didn't lose it. I didn't, I didn't spin out over this. And uh, a very uh, poignant uh, moment of it was that uh, I had a, uh, uh, this, this uh, European uh, uh, backer, this financial, this wonderful uh, person who was, who was backing me and owning the magazine. And uh, really, we were very close with one another, but uh, his, his, his family was very uh, unable to maintain equanimity because it looked as though we were going to fail. And they're going, we can't fail. You've got to do something about this. You, you've got to assure us we're not going to fail. And I kept saying, I can't give you any projections where we're going to start making money from here. There's not one single positive sign in the, the subscriptions and the newsstand sales and ad sales. Uh, there was no positive signs. I'd only been in the job about six months. And I, I I didn't know if I was going to be able to turn it around or not. But I couldn't go in and say, oh, well, this is how it's going to turn around when nothing, there was no sign. I couldn't make up some projection based on nothing. I'd never done a paid subscription magazine, so I couldn't claim, oh, well, I've had all this. I didn't know that was true. But I did know I was prepared to lose everything. I did know that that I had committed my full life to this. So I had a great deal of equanimity around this. It was not pleasant at all, not at all. And being blamed is never pleasant, as you know. Like, how did you get us into this, Philip? But that equanimity carried me through. Same thing, I'm sure, for some of you in relation to difficult times with your your children or with your health or the health of a loved one, where you just had to hold in there. I I went through that with myself, with a, a beloved one in terms of a. A stage three cancer. It was you know one didn't know one did not know, but the equanimity allows you to respond to the situation as you would wish, even though it's unsettling. Many times people conflate the tranquility factor and the equanimity factor. I, from my view, to their detriment. So I'm going to all of this length to tweak them apart so that you can start to notice the difference tomorrow in your practice. And even as I'm speaking now, you, I'm sure many of you are having thoughts about this for yourself. Oh, what about me and equanimity and all? And um, uh, equanimity is subject to development, as I will get to it a little later. The the other thing we've done in relation, in addition to the seven factors of enlightenment, are the four brahma vaharas on this retreat, and equanimity is the fourth of the brahma vaharas. And I just wanted to read what another teacher had to say about this power of equanimity. So, in case you don't believe me, <laughs> <laughs> and this is talking about it in terms of the four sublime states, the four brahma vaharas. Which, to remind you, loving kindness compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity, rooted in insight, is the guiding and restraining power of the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. That's how important it is. It's, it, it's, the, it's the guiding and restraining. Equanimity gives you the sense of balance just to know where to go and, and then it restrains you from going too far. And that's, that's the overlap with the seven factors of enlightenment. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quest or from going astray in uncontrolled emotions. See, if we if we don't have equanimity, our compassion turns to pity, and nobody wants your pity. So it's equanimity that gets that the the loving kindness, uh, with without the without the equanimity, uh, is is not appropriate. It, it gets it goes too far. It can become intrusive in some way. Equity, equanimity means even-mindedness gives to love an even and unchanging firmness and loyalty it endows it with the great virtue of patience i like that equanimity endows love with patience because you if someone you love you know how out of your love for them you can actually be very impatient and push and and go too far equanimity balances that Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair, which confronts boundless compassion again and again. This is so true. So true. In the one hand, with compassion, you can fall into self-pity. In the other way, you can get caught in the very pain that you're staying present for and get identified with it and then become part of the problem and not part of the solution. Uh, people will talk about when they're sick and people come to visit them and, and the people are so upset that they feel like they've got to take care of them and how they just want to be left alone because it's, it's so draining to take care of someone. That means their compassion, although well intended, was not guarded with equanimity. I can see you getting this. This is great. <laughs> To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. In these and other ways, equanimity may be said to be the crown and culmination of the other three sublime states. The first three, if unconnected with equanimity and insight, may dwindle away due to the lack of a stabilizing factor. So equanimity, this balance, this stabilizing, the images have been that you're on a boat and the boat can take the waves, you know, and that it's, it, it can ride the, the, the disturbances that happen in life. The, the boat stays balanced in the water or uh, another image that's sometimes used is a surfer on the surfboard riding the different waves that, that happen. Uh, In one place in our uh, text, our our, our suttas, our scriptures, whatever word you want to use, it's said that uh, the uh, completion of the four satipatthanas, this really being able to be fully mindful, is the completion of the seven awakening factors. That satipatthana, uh, as a fruit in that sense, brings all seven awakening factors. And uh, just to show you how closely tied everything is in the Dharma, the Dharma is holographic. If you find one little piece and you can get in that gate, go in that window, go in that door, you end up in all of the Dharma. It's really beautiful and inspiring in that way. And so this is an example of that. Where we practice the seven awakening factors, that helps us in our mindfulness, as you've seen this weekend, all the satipatthana practice, and as you practice the satipatthana, it also then brings you back to the seven factors, and we could do the same thing in relation to the brahma vihars. When mindfulness and investigation are guarded by equanimity we can really practice. I mean no matter what's going on we can really see it from the Dharma perspective because the equanimity gives enough balance and that there's that curiosity, that willingness to investigate, to receive the experience and all as I described the first night and then you've got this mindfulness. So any hindrance of mind, any wanting any story you have, any longing you have, any mistake you've made, you can stay present with it. Any any uh, untowards thing that has happened to you, you can stay with it. When it's more fully developed, not all at once. So we kind of ease our way into practice because we can get overwhelmed with with. Uh, something. So we have to, the equanimity would then, uh, the wisdom of the equanimity would go, oops, don't stay with this now, just go back to the breath, it's too much. But in time we become more and more able to truly experience choiceless awareness in our mindfulness because we don't mind being with anything. The mind is, has a level of equanimousness that it will, it will uh, receive it with the mindfulness, with this, these other powers of the mindfulness, the, like the uh, investigation. I refer to this sometimes as the participant observer. In the uh, Satipatthana and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Buddha says over and over again, awareness of the body in the body, awareness of the breath in the breath, awareness of the, the feeling that, that is the pleasant, unpleasant, in the pleasant or unpleasant. He is asking us to stay present in the experience, in the felt sense of the experience, whatever it is in the mind, in the body, our, our reactions to it, whatever it is to stay present. But it's present as an observer. You are participating, so you feel it. That's what I mean when that first night I was talking about you connect to the experience, you stay with it, you fully receive it, you investigate it, you have equanimity around it. You f- you fully receive it, but you are like an observer within the experience, not unlike that surfer. The surfer is aware of the wave, but he's also in the wave or she's in the wave, right? So it is in our own experience of our life, we can be fully involved in it and yet have this sense of uh, the, uh, the mindful awareness of it uh, as long as there's strong equanimity. Very, very uh, useful. It empowers practice so much. It allows us to start over. And it also allows us to look at the ego mind with great sympathy. One of the things that happens if you're going to uh, continue on this path is your ego is going to have to find its proper place. (laughs) Its proper place, not destroyed. We're not in the killing business. We're not. Not in the destroying business. But rather in letting the ego find its proper place as a helper, as an aid, as as something that can uh, uh, facilitate the serving of our deepest intentions. That's the role of the ego. And ironically, the ego is, when it finally accepts this, is so much happier (laughs) because the ego is defeated by life. Death alone is defeating to the ego. That it can't control things moment to moment is defeating to the ego. All the description of the, the first noble truth can be looked at from the point of view of how it overwhelms the ego. That this physical pain comes, this emotional pain comes, and the ego can't stop it from coming. This is, it's too much for the ego when the ego thinks it's in the center, that it thinks it's in charge. But once it finds its place, it's really quite useful. One wants to treat it a bit as a puppy dog, because sometimes it starts bounding away. Equanimity allows us to really see all the attachments of the ego and all of its fears and all of the layers of compensation and denial and all. So be a little bumpy. Be a little bumpy. I am comfortable as a teacher challenging you in that way. It's, we can understand it as seeing the truth of dukkha. We can see it as understanding the truth of change and how that's the feeding to the ego. And we can see it as the aspects that we've identified with as self and say, no, this is not self. You are not your ego. You are not your ego. Equanimity allows us to have the realizations of all of this. Everything that we see on retreat, if we have cultivated strong equanimity and uh, uh, we are able to see the Dharma in daily life. This is not a talk about that, but you can it, it is of all of the factors, the, the equanimity and the mindfulness these two together are, are, are the, from my view, the, the most immediately useful in taking your practice home. The first night that I gave a talk, I talked about how mindfulness leads to choice. If you don't have equanimity, the mindfulness can't sustain itself. And so you don't stay present long enough, you can't see clearly enough to really create choice for yourself. A number of you have mentioned this word choice in uh, your interviews with me, and I uh, I I really found this uh, quite empowering for myself, to see that with equanimity and with mindfulness, then I could live my intentions rather than live my reactions to pleasant and unpleasant. Very different way of meeting life. Equanimity stops us from uh, identifying with the inevitableness of wanting mind. It is a long, long time in the, the Buddhist schematic of, uh, of coming towards full enlightenment before that wanting mind completely goes away. There's a cartoon that I like that I've used in other retreats here. There's uh, two fish in the vast, vast ocean and one is speaking and the other one's got this dismay, if the fish can have dismayed look on its face. And the one fish is saying, I want the whole package, the little bowl, the colored pebbles, the plastic castle. <laughs> what about you? What, what, what is your little bowl? Hmm? What is your colored pebbles? What is your plastic castle. Don't we all have those things? I do, and I've been working at this a long time, and yet they will still come. Equanimity has this way of, oh look at me, look at me wanting this. Wow, I know where this leads. (laughs) Dukkha. It's, it's, so the, it's, it, without the equanimity, the mindfulness can't do its job. It can't, it can't have the insight because you just you start believing yourself. So then you become mindful in terms of getting what you want. And that's not, that's, uh, that, that is not Samasati, right or wise mindfulness of the Eightfold Path, using mindfulness to get what you want. But we will. And ironically, as we develop mindfulness here, we become better equipped to get what we want. So that the degree of clarity of intention, the d- degree of bringing up equanimity becomes quite important in terms of our ethics and in terms of our uh, appropriateness of what it is we're wishing to do with our time, with that, with our capabilities. Because the mindfulness can be used indiscriminately. And you are more powerful from having done this retreat. Equanimity comes about by nature. Uh, some of you were born with a lot of equanimity as, as your nature. It's not an even distribution. <laughs> we all seem to agree with that, right? Just like everything else, musical talent, or uh, ability to run fast, or how strong or tall you are, or round or, or uh, narrow your face. It's not, it's not an even distribution. So there is within your genetic makeup, or your karma, or however you like to describe what that is, there's, there's a difference in nature in that. That's the way it is. No sense whining about that it also equanimity is also affected by the conditions of your life particularly earlier conditions of your life it can be very hard unless you've got a great proclivity towards equanimity to have a lot of equanimity if you were always in danger as a child if you always had to be alert for one thing or another and if you were if you if you weren't already oriented towards equanimity, then you, you, your mind can be very like, you move around a lot with it. On the other hand, someone that had a lot of proclivity to equanimity, that they just, they, that same condition might actually increase their equanimity, ironically. The very same conditions, because they were so inclined that they, they compensated by getting more equanimous to the same sense of fear. You just it, It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. It's causes and conditions. You have inherited that certain uh, conditions of equanimity. And the good news, again this is all in my view, is how much we are able to develop, cultivate, develop, bring to fruition equanimity. It's amazing it's amazing you can have a mind where you feel as though that you just that you just don't have much equanimity at all you may not have much calm either or you may actually have some calm but you're just it's you you lose you get so absorbed in this you get absorbed in that that it's just you don't have equanimity you don't have balance but you can develop a great deal of balance from wherever you are starting and it starts pretty quickly. It takes a long time to bring another whole quantum level of equanimity, at least in my experience. Maybe that's not yours. Maybe other teachers have had a different experience than that. But it can take a long time. But you can start feeling, I mean, at the end of this retreat, you can go back in your daily life and see that you already return with more equanimity. You can watch it disappear. <laughs> but you can, you can see that you come back with it. But then you can also reconnect to the equanimity. And it's so useful that it's reinforcing to do so. Oh, here I am getting upset. Oh, here I am wanting. Oh, here I am ruining my day because I'm stuck in traffic. So I'm getting in this bad mood that's spoiling everything. It's a perfectly lovely day and I'm getting in this bad mood because I'm stuck in traffic. There's no equanimity. I'm totally going with my aversion. So the equanimity allows you to come back to balance. I stress this so much because uh, I have encountered uh, quite a few times where people uh, are treating their level of equanimity as true with the other factors also, I'm focusing on this tonight, that there's a fixity in their life. So they are, without realizing it, creating a self. They are, they are creating a self that is this level of equanimity. And that's myself. That's who I am. And I'm suggesting that's not true at all. That equanimity is subject to a Nietzsche. And that it's not a you, it's not got fixity, It's all, it's changing all the time anyway. You can take any 10 minutes of a a typical day and see how many times your equanimity changes in 10 minutes, let alone a day or a week. You know, you've watched it here, or you can watch it here on retreat. You can just see how sometimes you're quite equanimous and other times not at all. So you can increase the length of your time that you have a lot of equanimity, a lot relative to what's regular for you, the depth of your equanimity, so the length, the depth and the frequency that you drop into this feeling of "Oh, I've got some equanimity here." That's my experience. When I was um, uh, given my very first Dharma talk, do I remember where I was sitting. Uh, there were only two of us, so I must have been in one of these two places. Um, uh, I was. Uh, I, I. I was. I was the junior junior teacher, obviously, and the uh, the other teacher said, "Well, I'll explain what we're doing on opening night, and then you give the first talk, and I'll give the second talk." So I said, "Okay." So here it is, the first night of this retreat, right? And I give this talk, and uh, as you've noticed, I am inclined towards specificity. I'm inclined to giving a lot of information, and it's a somewhat challenge, you know. I'm I. It's, I, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> and um, uh, oh, some, someone said on one retreat, you know, you and Jack make a great team. He, he, he inspires and you instruct. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am, I'm giving this talk. And um, I, I was, I'd been really nervous about this. And I, I'm, uh, we're walking back. We haven't even gotten to the teacher's room we're walking back together. And I was like, you know, I was, I think I was able to do that. I think this actually was okay. And the teacher uh, whispers to me, now there's yogis, you know, around. Well, you just ruined the whole retreat. (laughs) I, I was devastated. I was devastated. This is a moment when I did not have equanimity. (laughs) Because I didn't know, I had no experience base, so my intuition had said, you know, that it was okay. But this person knew. I mean, I, you know, so so I gave away my power completely in this situation, and that became my reality—that I'd run this whole retreat. So then, when we were in the teacher room. And I, I we're really vulnerable after a talk, and so I mean, it's because we're 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 offering as best we can from our hearts, you know, and so it's it's really a vulnerable time, and uh, so it was wow. (laughs) So I did not sleep hardly at all that night. I mean, just tossing and turning, and I would keep redoing it in my mind, and I kept trying to. You know, like, what did I do wrong? And then, of course, your mind, you know how you want to fix things when it's too late? You're still like, (laughs) your mind will do this fixing. So I was going through all of that. Uh, By that point, though, once I was uh, back in my own room, my equanimity was back. So I watched me all evening and uh, having no calm mind. But my equanimity was back. But my mind wasn't calm. I kept leaving. I I would go into this uh, samsaric suffering, you know, about, oh, I've ruined this whole retreat. You know, how da-da-da I am and And, da-da-da-da. And it was so unsettling because I couldn't, for myself, I'm a person who, if you can say, oh, this you did wrong, and I can say, oh, yes, that's right, I'm, like, quite happy. I don't mind you know, being found wrong if I can see it, because then I can improve it. So I'm, I'm, I'm not defended in that way. But then when I can't even see what I've done wrong, and so it was – and I was just mind duh, 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 like this but yet the equanimity was there and the mindfulness was there. I was watching I was going, you know, Philip, if you're going to do this, this kind of work, you're going to have to get over this because in everything else you've ever done, people at times projected on you and disapproved of you and you've made mistakes, so you're going to have to, you're going to have to, you know, develop Uh, some uh, some ability to stay calm in the face of really major criticism. And so then that became my practice. So I'm doing the practice and all this, but I I feel miserable and the next morning I feel miserable and all this. Then we do our interviews. And in the other teachers' interviews and in my interviews, that was such a great talk last night. That was so helpful. This is a different way of describing this and I can use this. One positive comment after another. So at lunchtime, the other teacher has to come to me and sort of sheepishly say, well, I guess I was wrong about that assessment. <laughs> I took no delight in, in having the other person having been wrong, but I took huge relief that I had not ruined the retreat. I took no delight because I wasn't I I wasn't wanting to be right in this instance. I was wanting not to have caused harm. That was my only concern in this instance. So I had, the the equanimity was strong enough for me not to get like wanting revenge or being right or, you know, self-righteousness or any of that. I was greatly relieved that I had not run the retreat. So in your life, you will have times when you're blamed and sometimes it's right. You're at fault. Equanimity allows you to accept that you are at fault and it allows you to learn from it. So then it becomes a great opportunity. So then it's the... the, the, if, if we take mistakes as from the point of view of lifelong learning they're opportunities. Generally so. I'm not saying any of this in some like sweet kind of way. I, I think you've all seen by now. I'm a pretty realistic guy. <laughs> if, if, if it's So you, it can be an opportunity for learning. If you are being projected upon or if you're being in some way blamed and it's, it's not something that you can learn from directly, then equanimity allows you not to collapse under that pressure. Equanimity really allows you that. It's really empowering. I can't stress this enough. Because when we collapse, uh, we then, uh, uh, we are very unskillful in how we treat ourselves or maybe how we treat others. So uh, once I was, uh, uh, I had traveled to uh, Barcelona because uh, uh, and I was in a relationship at the time with uh, this woman who was a cellist, and she was doing a concert in Barcelona, so I flew there, and then we were we did this tour of Spain. We just got rented a, I rented a car, and we just drove around all, all over Spain for a few days, and we were having this really great time together. And um, uh, one night we pulled into some town, which I cannot remember at all and uh we got to this restaurant just the, we were the last people seated and next to the last people to leave and it was the fancy restaurant in whatever town this was and um food was good and we were just having a really fine time but we were dressed you know jeans and very casual but i mean we were we were grown ups we weren't like college kids i can't remember how old i was then but i mean it was like let's say i was in my 40s um, and uh, as I'm, uh, there was, uh, uh, I As we paid the check, because we didn't pay the check at the table, you had to pay the check up at this cashier place sort of thing and um, I go up there and I, as I'm paying the check, the owner of this restaurant comes rushing up and says you stole my spoon, pointing to my friend and I that we'd stolen a spoon off the table. And I, what? What? You stole my spoon. My companion laughed, and I said, "Oh no, we didn't steal your spoon. I I wanted to communicate that we were innocent." My companion thought it was funny, and it was funny, right? The whole notion that you go steal a spoon. And I mean, maybe that could happen as some souvenir or something, but it was just, it was a funny moment if looked at with equanimity. But an area for me uh, of weakness in relation to equanimity is when I am being falsely accused. It's very hard for me. I don't mind the regular projection and blame in terms of maintaining equanimity, but I will lose equanimity around being falsely accused. I want to communicate. I want to be understood, right? Because I'm so, so uh, such a responsible person. So uh, she's saying it's somewhere on your, you know, on uh, 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 you know, in your pockets or in your bag, because I had my little bag with me that I carry everywhere. And I was prepared to empty all my pockets. I was going to empty the whole bag. And my companion got very angry at the owner of this restaurant and said, You are out of line. And da da da. And just told this woman off. And I'm just, I'm just in like spinning back and forth around this. Cause this is like, what is, you know, in terms of the precepts, what's the, you know, like, I just, <laughs> worthless, absolutely worthless in the situation. So we get outside. And my companion says, Philip, what is your problem? <laughs> but I was really upset still. You know, I, was, I could not see the humor in it at all. I was really upset. So the next day we've gone around town and we've we're, we're gone around doing whatever we were doing and we're back in that town to go to a different restaurant. And we go by that restaurant and I say, you know, what about our going in to see this? You know, because I, I still wanted to go in and explain that we had not taken her spoon. And, you know, and and my companion said, you know, Philip, you're sort of hopeless in this. (laughs) You, too, will have some area or many areas or aspects or pockets where you have a tendency to not have equanimity. For you, it may be around physical pain where you lose the equanimity. For you, it may be around mental pain in any of the three times, you can lose your equanimity about the past, which, you know, is like the past isn't even here. And yet we can conjure it up and get so attached to it through memory and association that we lose our equanimity about the past around an emotional thing in our past or about the present or about the future. It may be in work situations, it may be under pressure, it may be in vulnerable situations in your your relationship it may uh, it may be with peers at work or with you know your 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 boss at work or for those working for you it there's everybody's different everybody's got their own pattern of of, of the way that equanimity manifests in their life you You can start by changing small pieces. Of your life by being bringing your awareness to this and cultivating this sense of equanimity, like oh, this too is subject to a Nietzsche, It's not self. It's dukkha when I grab hold of it. This all of the you, all of the things that we've been teaching this entire retreat and will continue to teach, you can bring to bear in such a way that you don't get defined so much initially. A little change at first, and then more change by uh, by what's difficult for you. It is not a failure. It is, has not, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no guilt in relation to where you can't keep your equanimity. It's all due to causes and conditions. If you really believe that, if you really understand that, if you see for yourself it's true, it will allow the development of equanimity uh, faster and more fully, at least in my experience. So what gets in the way of developing equanimity? A lack of interest, just not interested, there's no motivation or there's no awareness that equanimity is a factor that brings dukkha or, that, or can uh, be the end of dukkha, the development of it. So this lack of interest or lack of, of awareness about it, a lack of faith. This is so true in so many aspects of the spiritual path. The lack of faith. Faith is... The way we use faith is not believing. It's not the same as believing. It is being willing to suspend disbelief long enough to see for yourself. To see for yourself. Eipasiko. Come see for yourself, the Buddha said. Come see for yourself. Be a light unto yourself. Hold truth... Hold to the Dharma as your light, as your truth. This feeling of seeing for yourself. So... Uh, And I'm using equanimity really in a way that we could do this for all of them, this importance of faith in that way and the lack of it being in the way. And then a lack of modeling and mentoring or not hearing the teachings. If you've never seen someone work with equanimity, if you didn't have a parent who, who, uh, uh, particularly the parent you were identified most with, if they had very little equanimity, then you know then you've just not had the chance and you, maybe you've you're in an environment where nobody has much equanimity they they thrive on hysteria and and chaos and you know there's a lot of work situations like that people confuse that with excitement which i don't think that's true excitement at all but that's another dharma talk <laughs> so the lack of mentoring to the, uh, that you've never had someone work with you in terms of your equanimity which we have consciously done on this retreat. We have pointed you to many things that would help you in, in the individual meeting and in Dharma talks that will help develop equanimity, help you particularly develop equanimity. A lack of knowledge about what equanimity is and isn't. That means that this investigation of it and its role in your life and how it's playing and understanding it in the four Brahma Baharas and in the seven factors and all. And then a lack of skillful practice. If you want to get better at anything, you practice. This is no different. When we have equanimity, it helps in in so many ways, so it's worth practicing. You know, things that you can do, at least what I have found to be helpful, is this access to being grounded in the body the way I have taught in these guided meditations. It is so powerful. The body is an underutilized tool for equanimity in my experience. you Cultivation of seeing the impersonal nature of conditions. Everybody gets angry. Everybody has a bad day. Everybody's incompetent in some area. If you see that these are just universal, then as opposed to personal to you, making it about you, this can really help with equanimity. Finding a safe place to practice like here can really help you so that you can sit there on your cushion and you see losing equanimity and coming back to it. It's a safe place. It's more difficult in the heat and speed of daily life. Cultivating starting over. The more you realize that you can just start over, the more equanimous you will become. Of course all the other factors of enlightenment help equanimity and that's what we've been doing. We've in a way built all of the factors really to get to this deep version of equanimity. And then this attitude of surrender, of of letting go, of uh, being willing to be with things as they are, that is such a key part of mindfulness, really develops equanimity. A teaching from my teacher, the Venerable Samedo, Ajahn Samedo. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this, and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamakaya and the Prajnaparamita and then get ordination in the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana and then write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. And when he says something like that, he means every word of it. That means for two years, he did nothing but this single practice. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences." (laughs) So this surrender, just let go, very powerful in terms of cultivating equanimity. Well, let's see. I can't tell you about the time I fell off the mountain in Zermont in the story of equanimity because we're out of time. Seeing if there's any last thing I can do here. Yes. There will come a time for each of us and for most of us a series of times when our equanimity Will be deeply challenged as a, as a, in its very existence that it's like the it 's all been taken from us that there is no equanimity not just around that one thing but it's it 's so overwhelming to us this particular challenge that we lose any sense uh, and, and maybe for uh, hours or days or weeks at a time have no sense of equanimity at all. This is not. A defeat, nor an inadequacy. This realm is like this. This realm is like this. Some of you may have already known this. Some of us will know it more than once in our lives. As Jack was saying last night, whatever measure it is that we're given, the practice is surrendering to it being willing to bear this level, and it is scary, it can be sad, It can be equally sad to see someone you love lose any sense of this equanimity. But in time it will come back, in time you will regain it, particularly if you have a practice the way we have the practice of the Dharma, particularly through the practice of mindfulness and the Brahma I'm going to end with reading this poem, and it's a little bit of a challenging poem to end with, but I really want to capture this feeling that through our mindfulness, we and our compassion for ourselves and our loving kindness for ourselves, we can respond when this kind of a challenge comes. It's called Without Notice, and it's by Mark Nepo, N E P O, the person his poem I read, another poem of his, my first talk. And he's describing a situation in his life, and you will see how this unfolds. Faith is no longer a construct, but some vital tool as urgent to, as urgent as an oar in the ocean, or a prayer in the modern world. The radiation therapist who cares, but can't look us in the eye, glances at his watch and tells us that whole head radiation could erase my memory and render my salivary glands useless, which would mean no more taste and incessant dryness, a ropiness in the mouth. My memory and my mouth are my instruments. They are fingers to a pianist, knees to a quarterback." So what am I to do? Life has changed. Or rather, my position in life. When waiting in the anteroom for surgery, we were all lined up, four or five of us. And one by one, the masked angels of this medical underworld were hooking us up. Next to me was a young black girl, a poor, innocent, inexperienced being, terrified of the needle that would make her sleep. So terrified, she moaned before the needle touched her skin. How I felt her moan. But this was her karma. The needle wouldn't take, and they had to try four, five, six times until it settled in a vein. I lay there on my back, my last pouch of innocence torn. Who will suture that? I felt her moan, what on earth is my karma? What do I fear and need to relinquish so deeply that I am here? I have always needed closure, have always planned the days minutely in advance. But as we struggle, it's clear there will be no closure. There will never be closure again. It makes me wonder if there was ever closure. Or was it just a fabrication like time? A rope of mind which humans, humans need to get by. Is lack of closure my needle? Which because I fear it must be thrust at me four, five, six times until it settles in my spirit's vein? Is this odyssey the shakedown of all my time tried ways? Have I believed in the sea and now... Without notice, I am forced to let go of the dory and push out, out, out. When we are challenged in this deep way by life, the faith that allows the equanimity will be lost to us at times. You will have your needle that will challenge you in some way. You will, have, uh, you will have that loss of innocence in some way. And again, it may be more than once. We think that we've lost our practice, or our practice has failed us, or we weren't adequate, we, hadn't, we thought we'd learned something and we haven't. We make up all of these stories in these very difficult times. I want to assure you that those stories are false, those are Mara speaking to you. Your practice is there. It is available in some way, seen or unseen, known or unknown. It is available. It is part of this. We go through these times, and on the back end of them, we can return with a a greater kind of faith, with a greater kind of equanimity because in that moment when we don't have the equanimity, we are learning the equanimity when there is no equanimity. The equanimity when there is no equanimity. This is such a powerful teaching. It's such a powerful teaching you are getting yourself in condition to be able to meet life in this way. You are creating choice, possibility, a base, a ground from which to meet even these moments, this too, this too, choiceless awareness where nothing need be excluded. Just as the practice has this deep promise of full liberation, it also has this deep promise in terms of meeting daily life. I personally, as Jack was saying last night, I don't separate those two. That It is one practice manifesting in the relative and the absolute. The more that you can feel this the more you will be motivated. I've taken this extra time because I care so much about this and would care that you know this for your own empowerment. I may never have another chance to say this to you. So thank you for listening so attentively to this. Let us have the bell ring as the ending.